Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce to you an old friend of mine, Gigi Johnson, who is the executive director of UCLA Center for Music Innovation and head of the Miramel Institute and Next Careers. Now, Gigi and I are actually also fellow alumni of Fielding Graduate University, and uh, that's where we first met. But it's just been so exciting to follow your path and to cross paths with you and in the tech world. So welcome, Gigi. Glad to be on board here. Now, you say old. It's not that long ago. Well, no, uh, that's true. In, in the great <laughs> scheme of life, it was the early, the early 2000s. Yeah, it just feels like so much has happened since then. It feels old, you know? Or I should say late, late 2000. How do you call those years, right? So I think we probably met like 2008, 2009. It's interesting because I just, Facebook, of course, jams memories at you, right? So they just jammed a memory of me wearing Google Glass and told me it was only four years ago. And I was thinking, that was only four years ago when I got my Google Glass attached to a pair of, of, uh, on Furstenberg lenses. And, and I think that in this digital weird tech world, the sense of time gets wonky. Well, and, and that's a wonderful thing, but it also, it, it can be a little confusing sometimes. It's, it's sort of, you know, I, I feel the same way. It's sometimes if you post a picture that's an old picture and it gets tagged with the date of when you post it, you sort of can't remember when did this actually happen? Unless you go and then your Google devices, if you're a Google Android phone, it seems to keep the location and uh, date of everything you've ever taken. So it becomes this weird extended memory or external brain for you that you then began to forget for yourself when something was. It, it's, a, it's an interesting time right now where we have all these digital things that are all attempting to be that little tap you on the shoulder device to remind you of what, when, how, and why which is fabulous and reduces our ability to actually do the same thing. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, the timestamp thing is one, but I mean, I've been doing a lot of work as we we move a lot, physically move. And I've ended up archiving a lot of old photo books and photographs by just taking a picture of them. And so those capture the time of when I took the picture of the picture rather than the original picture. It was, it was that that I was referring to. But, but absolutely, the timestamps are so helpful. But I had an interesting experience, I guess it was about two years ago, updating a new phone or, you know, moving to a new phone, and it lost all my metadata on my photos. Oh, yeah. And it was this moment of panic of, you know, how important is it for me to go back through 10 years of photographs to actually figure out what sequence they are and where they go. And in the end, you know, because it was really only me that could do that, right? Because I'm the only one that knew the context. Have you had any older relatives pass away recently? Yeah. We, we've been going through a lot. So my, I'm married to my college sweetheart. We've been married 30 something years and we have one older relative left. And we have ended up with everyone's pictures going back generation and generation where there's some relatives who went and put sort of real life metadata and wrote who the heck people were on the back of photos from 1920. And then anything we have current, all we have is the date of when it was taken and then who the heck these people are. So we've been thanking our deceased relatives for thinking of writing data on things. We're in this interesting mode now of trying to take all that old history that is going to deteriorate in, in some cases in formats that we can't even get to anymore and make it so our own adult kids can understand these lives gone by. It, it's sort of interesting how we, how we sort and tag and think about storage and sharing in an era where we don't go back to look at our photos from three weeks ago because they're so fluid and naturally just go into all our devices. Absolutely. And I, I mean, to that end, I was thinking about creating photo books for my kids. And I realized that 
I don't have that many pictures of them from their lives, you know, so they take all of their photos on their phone. And in some contexts, they're using them in things like Snapchat, so they disappear. But I asked them each to send me some, you know, sort of their favorite photos from the year, so I could at least have some that captured their lives outside of family events, because as teenagers, that's pretty much the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was an interesting sort of dialogue of, well, why would you want to do that? Why do we need it on paper? I have pictures of you on my phone. You know, why do I need that? And it was just sort of a, it, it was an interesting perspective for me because I was so sort of fixated on it. So nice to have that book that you can flip through the pages and, you know, but it, it does become one more thing that you have to carry around with you. We have a, a house that is up against the hills in Southern California. So a couple times in the past few years, the fire has come within half a mile of the house. And we always had this conversation about what do you now throw in the car? Do you throw the hard drive or computer in the car? That's what we did for years, actually, when the fire would come close to the house. And now everything is kind of in the cloud. But then we have all these generations worth of pictures. What are we keeping? And why are we keeping it? And do we want to go through and digitize everything? I'll try to explain to my kids, this was a Betamax tape. (laughs) (laughs) And we have those too, which we can't even play anymore with the devices we have in the house. So, you know, what is the archive and what is the things you keep in an emergency in your lives? And, you know, what relatives really want to have this stuff? Yeah. Uh, it's, It's interesting in our relationship with the information. I teach at UCLA. And I teach in the music school. I was at the business school for about 10 years, 12 years, teaching digital disruption there, which is fun because all sorts of past master's students are doing crazy great things in the world. But now I'm working with a bunch of 20-year-olds who are music majors or econ majors, teaching, taking music, et cetera. And I'm perpetually shocked at their relationship with data that I just had, well, I, I ask students to put together portfolios of their work and they give me a bunch of hyperlinks Mm -hmm. and their thought is, because I said, well, that's nice, but what happens when that link goes down or is moved and you see this blank look on their faces because the concept that a hyperlink won't be there is non-existent to them. Mm. So thinking about the data in the world they'd need to reconnect to and things they've done. They might have run this fabulous music festival or had a wonderful review of an album they did. And the thought of actually capturing that as some kind of a portable digital file to be able to share later with somebody else, every single one of them thinks that that hyperlink is perpetual. Mm. And then in class last week, I had students where I asked them, we're looking at how you research a song. And these are students who are musicians and have been engaged with music and love music. And I asked them the simple question of how would you know who wrote song X? And they immediately went to their phones and looked it up other than one student who asked Siri who wrote the song in the (laughs) middle of class. But then I asked them when they were done where that data came from, you know, who was the source? And they all said, Google. And the thought that there would be a source under the source, these are well-educated 20-year-olds. They were at a loss for the fact that they would need to look for validity under what they just found on the web, which of course must be true. So I've got my work cut out ahead of me for this term. Uh, It's that way every term, but I'm running into all these students, these fabulous digital natives for whom this is so fluid that they don't look under the hood. Oh, fascinating. So do you think that they're, for them, when they, when they learn that the concept of opening up the hood, does that frustrate them or does it excite them that there's another level? I would say both sides. So I have an advanced course I teach in this spring that is working with students who then are working with a band, brand, venue, to within 10 weeks, build out a complete marketing plan, website, social media, and launch. It's been something we're building up now for about eight years. And the students start out not understanding how anything works under the hood. And there's this massive shock once they realize that this is all being crafted, manipulated, tracked, sorted, et cetera. It, I tend to joke it's a little like when you find your babysitter has been paid. 
uh, that you, you think that everything is neutral and for you, their first response is shock. And then they learn, wait, wait, I can actually find the exact type of audience I'm looking for and do research under other artists to see who's following them. And then they get somewhat Machiavellian uh, that they end up building out these really fabulous ideas on how to find you know, exact match audiences and all these other cool things really quickly that once they kind of look under the hood and see how things work, they bolt forward quite quickly. But the, the first part of it, the first day almost, there's this massive shock as to, wait a minute, this is how the system works that I've been working in? I love that analogy of realizing, you know, that moment when you realize your babysitter gets paid. It's like, wait a minute, you're paying for my friends. Um, (laughs) I didn't earn this. You don't just love me. What you're saying is so true. And I see that in people that I work with as a mentor often as well, where they're sort of, they take things for granted. And then when you do open up the hood and give them the tools to dig a little deeper, they really just fly and they they produce some really amazing stuff. What's your favorite thing to sort of that, that helps them actually trigger opening up the hood? In some cases, it's simply looking at Google and Facebook's own media about themselves, which they put out there with great regularity. There's upteen videos about how they work, so in in their own language, and then a few of the folks who, and which is very popular nowadays, to be very anti Facebook and Google, a little bit more the data under the hood. Mm-hmm. So I've got a, a set of modules I've put together that sort of a self study, watch a bunch of videos, and see a bunch of alternate narratives about what we're going through, that opens the door. This is very much of a video population. Getting into the Gen Z folks, I know that the generation stuff tends to be hyper generalized, but there is a real need and a desire to see images and video to tell the story for that age group a lot. And so that's a really great way to take that story to them to hear all of these. Here's how we work stories. And then here's how they work under the hood stories. And then for them to play with it. So I opened the door to many tools that are out there. Uh, similar web is one of my favorite ones to hand to students so they can actually see, oh, that gorgeous website doesn't even get enough people coming to it to be able even to move the dial. And then here's where all that traffic comes from. And then they start mapping out some of their favorite sites and artists to sort of see how things work and the light bulb goes on. Very cool. So it sounds like you're using a lot of the analytics tools. And, and I mean, this is kind of amazing because you're working in the space of you know, music and innovation. Mm-hmm. And so one wouldn't assume that when you go into doing music, you're going to be looking at analytics tools for data. So is that something they're sort of expecting because they're, they are digital natives and they're coming from that space of everything is about data? Or do you find that because those are a little bit, you know, left brain, right brain, is there a resistance to digging deeper into the data because it's not the music part or the creative part? Students who walk in my class are already looking at the music industry as some way to make money. A lot of them all are performers, so they very much are in that space. I would say that they're not expecting it at all, and it becomes somewhat of a shock, but it also becomes a superpower that they can then walk out and talk with any artist about that artist data, and the kids get hired really quickly out of this work. That companies themselves can't do this a lot, so being able to maneuver the tools but I, I would contest, going back to the doctoral work, uh, mm-hmm. that, that a lot of this stuff is really manipulating symbols mm. and the ability to understand music and relationships in music and, and even visualize music in some cases correlates pretty well with being able to manipulate symbolic systems, not getting very nerdy at this, mm-hmm. but, but also being able to think about how to use data visualizations to tell the story of the audience. And it's a lot of storytelling too, which they tend to be very robust about, but no, they don't, they don't expect this when they walk in the door at all. Now, the, the time of this is pretty crucial. We've been following from the UCLA Center for Music Innovation, a lot of these music data tools since they were born. We've been working with a lot of the top tools from when they were in beta. So some of these we've known for five to seven years, and we have been working with them and having them come talk in our classes at all sorts of stages of time. And I've done a lot of projects and work with them. So the 
the fact that these tools are out there and trying to figure out this business in many ways predates the craziness we're in now where the information came out and we're talking now in October of 2018, because I know people listen to podcasts at various points in time, but the data came out fairly recently from the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America data, that we are now at about three quarters of industry revenue in the United States from recorded music is coming from streaming. Wow. That we are down to very little coming from CDs and digital downloads are falling by multiple, by, by in their 20 something percent plus each year right now. And actually CDs and, and vinyl are actually holding their own better in some cases than digital downloads. And this is happening almost totally globally. But when we went back to, let's say, Christmas time last year, we were only at about over half for a lot of countries. So the United States is, has jumped dramatically. In other countries, Germany was one of the last holdouts that was massively CD. They're now over 50% streaming. So now what's happening is the entire consumption of music is turning into a service, not product. So that if artists and the people who love them don't understand the data dust being left behind, they're missing most of the value and how to understand this crazy customer journey that their fans are on. Mm. So true. I have several family members who are well ensconced as performers in the in the music industry. And to listen to their stories of how just the whole industry has changed and the, the way that they engage with their fans, you know, having to be a lot more involved in social media, but also that going on tour has be, really become much more important. And it's not about promoting a new album. It's about creating a relationship with your fans, because otherwise, they're just, just part of the mix that's in the streaming. And they just half the time, unless somebody does a Shazam, they don't even know who the artist is. A lot of it, though, is that the services now know what you the fan did yesterday. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the well, we'll do this and then wait a week to see what happens until the Nielsen numbers come out, or see who buys tickets to our show. We actually know what was listened to by track, by city, by area, by artist, other artists. And so the data, you, if you do X, Y, Z today, you can see the impact nearly immediately. And so that if you know you have a show coming up, you're then working that audience to remind them. And the concept of an album also is fading very rapidly that the services really are looking for individual tracks. So there's really the the whole concept of continually putting out new beautiful fodder for the audience to love you and think about going to your concerts. Now for songwriters who aren't out going to concerts, they're hoping that people are playing their music and, and getting your music out there is incredibly important. Radio is still important. People are still listening to the radio, though that's declining, but that's now all intertwined also with streaming. So this is Becoming a if you're if you're not into data in the music industry, hopefully you have somebody on your team that can understand this stuff cold because you're trying to influence people to recommend your stuff as the core part of the music business right now, whether it's playlists or influencers or other stuff. So it's a it's a sector that if you're a, a young whippersnapper who really <laughs> loves data but loves music, there's such a great spot for you now where that was maybe not a position four years ago. And being able to influence the influencers and tracking who is influencing who is an entire large sector of business that a lot of young people who love music and understand data and how to digest it from the various services and possibly even know Python, goodness gracious. <laughs> but being able to actually have that sort of um, poet-quant combination nowadays is under pretty heavy demand. It sounds like the... The UCLA program really prepares kids or future artists for the next stage of careers, which is sort of what I wanted to lead into now, because I know you do a lot of work with really, you know, the whole next career piece of preparing uh, students for the future and preparing people for sort of the changing workforce. And what does that mean? Can you talk a little bit about that work and uh, what you're doing there? Sure. And, and it in part sprung out of two things. So Next Careers is a nonprofit that I launched 
in 2016. So again, going back to our time metaphors, only two years ago, though it feels like it's been forever. And it was in part because I have three adult kids of my own who went through fabulous University of California schools plus other institutions. And they, of course, me teaching at UCLA now for 19 years. Goodness gracious, that's where mom teaches. So they wouldn't go to UCLA, but they've been to other UCs. And they came out of them going, I'm getting other than here's how to put a resume together and here's some career fairs, really without robust support in the areas that in some cases are very quirky that they were taking engineering or other areas. And so I started looking into what other universities were doing at the same time as I was working with my own students and creating courses at UCLA on how to create a creative career, thinking that these were changing pretty dramatically and how what's in common with all of these different career paths. At the same time, we started working, had been working with First Tech Challenge Robotics with a bunch of high schoolers, 1600 now to be precise across Southern California, and realizing similarly that they were getting a narrative of, well, go to college and life will happen and go in STEM school college and everything will be great. And then getting to college and being told, here, go into this big company. So more and more started talking to lots of companies who were saying, our worlds are changing really dramatically. The types of jobs, the types of augmentation and enhancements from having early AI available. And so what we're having kids coming to us is they can't even use Excel or they can't even manipulate data or do external research. And so what is happening with the mismatch between the story we're telling high school and college kids about how to be prepared and then what we're doing in college and beyond to support people as these jobs all change. So Next Careers began to do a bunch of pilots with both UCLA and several other universities and several online programs to try to create more of a, how do I plot out different directions and explore how careers are changing and not just respond to a single job opening that gets 400 applications at a career fair at college, which has never been the best way to go for things. Mm -hmm. But we have an entire population of kids who the majority from at least our work so far seem to think that this is um, very much of a responding to a template and they will magically be picked. So we're right now in year two of doing a whole bunch of pilots and working with a bunch of companies in the career industries to try to change that dialogue. And we're going to be launching a lot of things at the first of the year with various programs and partners, possibly under another name, which we haven't announced yet, to take a look more broadly at how jobs are changing and getting mostly college kids and beyond to think differently about how they're framing their skill building, their career journey in this very data heavy world, that they're really thinking that they go to a database, put the resume in, and somehow they'll be selected. And I do think this is, I do run into kids who do the opposite, totally run into kids who do the opposite, but they're almost a rarity in this mix I call it dataism. Other people call it dataism as well. Thinking that data will provide. The algorithm will, of course, pick me and everything will be perfect. And not that the system really is taking you in as a product. And indeed, in LinkedIn and Brass Ring or whatever the system is that a company is using, ZipRecruiter, to digest the mass of resumes or to go out and use AI to find people from scraping the web... This isn't on your side of the equation. It's on their side of the equation and how to really build a system in this digital world to build out career options and explore and discover. We're really broken right now. And so this is trying to create some programs. And And I don't know for your listeners if they've got other great systems they see, because there's wonderful programs out there, but they're not in the majority of colleges and they're not in the majority of high schools. And once you leave college, you're continuing to re-narrate, reinvent, but up against a system that is trying to put you through full-time job profile selections for old-fashioned job descriptions. Sorry, I'll get off that soapbox. That's it's something a, I'm very okay. passionate uh, about. I know. I totally hear you, and I feel for you on this one because I have a teenager myself who is in that process of trying to figure out sort of, you know, he's graduating this year, and he's 
decided to take, you know, a year off and do a bunch of different internships to try to figure out what's next and what, you know, what does he need to do? And up here, I'm closer to Silicon Valley. And a lot of the conversation is some of the bigger companies are even saying, you don't have to go to college if you have the right skill set. We're more interested in that than having sort of you take a bunch of arts and sciences classes and then come out with nothing, you know, no real skills. And so, you know, there's a lot of different models. Now, that's not to say that that is the solution. But I think that what we're seeing is this shift in paradigm of what the expectations in in the job market are. And it's not necessarily matching with the education system. And well, I would contest, though, that it hasn't for a long time. And the fact that I know when I graduated from college many decades ago now, I didn't come out with any type of job skills. I learned to type on my own. I was typing other people's papers. And that college wasn't providing those necessarily then either. Companies have stopped training people in many cases and are expecting people to come out already able to use digital tools, already able to use Excel, already able to, I mean, there's a gigantic demand for coding kids, but then what are they doing all day other than sitting behind a computer that there's a gigantic need for coders. I just came back from Wonder Woman Tech, which was an intriguing event. They're in several different cities around the United States. And they mostly were looking for women coders. And even though the word was tech, there's a big volume of people who are going to sit behind a computer and code. My future son-in-law is a phenomenal coder, and a lot of his life is sitting behind a computer. But what about the rest of everything else? That there's Part of it, though, is the skills have gotten fairly complex. And we haven't, for most universities, spent time making sure the kids are walking out the door with the tech skills that they actually need for their first job. But that's not new. It's almost like that space in between. Everyone's put their hands up and going, not my job anymore. Yeah. And, and the thing is, it's constantly changing. So it's very hard for them to to keep up with that digital transformation that's occurring everywhere, both, you know, sort of in the education system, they're lagging. And then when they come out into the marketplace, the, you know, the institutions are also lagging in terms of trying to understand what their own needs are, because they may be different a year out. But I think it's more the what I get a sense of, at least from watching these kids that are, you know, just coming out of college, and the ones that are just sort of exploring what their options are, is trying to understand where their passion is, and what kind of what degree of tech do they need to be flexible with or to... You know, and we have this odd mythology about passion when they haven't had... And I, I really applaud your son going and doing a year uh, walkabout, doing jobs and internships, because you really don't know from the little amount we show you in college or in high school, what you can actually do with things or even what might be... I mean, I, I, every story that I talk with people of my age and the decade below of how they got to where they are was something that they never would have seen when they were standing in high school or college. There might have been a piece of it. One of my friends who longtime musician now is someone who is a pilot and trains other pilots and now shuttles antique aircraft all over the eastern United States. Nothing he would have even seen as a possibility 10 years ago from what he was doing then. There's so many needs out there that it's almost a, a marketing marketplace to get into the crowded headspace of a high school kid. But at the same time, though, the colleges are spending, and this number is a couple of years old, $2,700 per kid that gets their rear end in a seat the first day of class, where they're mostly the message is, ah, come to college and we will solve life for you. <laughs> and there's phenomenal colleges that have all sorts of great quirky programs that they're not spending that $2,700 to take you on an alternate path. And then the people who've got really interesting things where there's big need for kids to come into those fields aren't spending the money or marketing time, again, in this very digitized data world to get in front of kids to realize, for example, there is going to be a gigantic need for professional airplane pilots. And your average kid in high school would have no idea of that. But there's lots of kids who that might be a phenomenal thing to go do, but they wouldn't know that a big chunk of the professional airline pilots are retiring in the next few years. Hmm. There's a gigantic need for veterinarians. There's a large number of veterinarians who are retiring. Interestingly, you have a lot of young girls wanting to be a veterinarian now because of seeing veterinary shows that are animated now. And so... 
similarly, the whole CSI stuff got a lot of kids to go into forensics. Mm -hmm. What is it that in this, again, visual media heavy world inspire someone to say, wow, that's what I could do that actually is this really non-traditional match of what I'm passionate about in my skills. Because you don't know what you're really passionate about unless you really get out there. So I have college kids who then say, well, I'm going to go into grad school. I'm going, great. What are you going to study? Well, I don't know yet. I think I'm going to do this because I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm going to spend two more years in college paying more tuition and then go figure it out. So I think that getting out in the world and Finding things that you're really fabulously curious about or that you could be really intrigued by and learn a lot, but this find your passion shtick, I think is making, it's pushing kids heavily into things like the arts and sports and other things where there's really not necessarily that many jobs compared to the population pushing into it, where there's so many fabulous things out there, but they're not out there, visible, marketing, sexy, gorgeous and, and a lot of it is that there's things that you actually need to go explore as a kid and just going to classes and not, you know, if you really want to do film, go do film yep. and then see if you really want to do film. If you want to do music, if you want to do art, if you say you think you want to do it, don't say it, try it. And, and that's where I push my own students to be doing things and out building and growing and having a portfolio of stuff they've actually done. And if it isn't then sparking for them, go explore something else. I mean, I'm on my ninth career and I would never have seen the combination of crazy things I've built into my current spot. I have a film degree from USC and did documentary work. And that actually comes back into work I've been doing in web stuff and three web series I've done, but I wouldn't have known that from 1984 when I graduated from film school. I have an MBA and did banking for 10 years, which I never would have thought of when I was in film school. And then this whole college side of things and looking at next generation digital, my background of you know, looking at when I you know was in the 1980s in college, I wouldn't have seen any of this stuff. So thinking that you can stand at 17 or 18 in high school or 21 in college and say, I can see where I'm going and I see my passion taking me. It really is sticking your neck out and getting, getting the ball in motion. I'm not a great sports person, but you know, getting <laughs> things moving. Yeah, uh, no, I'm with you 100% on that. I think it's so important for them to dip their toes in and, and really try, try a bunch of different things to see what really resonates for them and see where it might lead them. And also to sort of realize that maybe if they've been either pushed into a certain path because it's the path you're supposed to go or that they chose something that doesn't feel right and isn't working for them, that you can switch. I mean, I myself have had several different careers, more than several, maybe not six, but I've probably, you know, at least had chunks of about four or five over the course of my career. And each one of those has built to where I am now, but there are very different areas. And so now it seems sort of congruous, but at the time people were like, wow, you, you know, what were you doing over there? It's like, well, I learned different things at each of those different stages. And there's so many great opportunities to try different things and still get paid to do it. You know, you, you go work overseas and, and experience different cultures and see what, you know, how they do things differently over there or, you know, as an intern or whatever, where you're going to get some real life experience. If you haven't tried something, you don't have the the base experience required to get a higher position. So I'm curious, you, you talked a little bit about sort of the shifting career piece. And I know you work predominantly with your students are sort of, you know, the younger generation. But do you see people taking a shift also for sort of the more mature worker, or that's the wrong word, but sort of, you know, the the mid-career shift happening and where maybe some of the old skills or old ideas can add value to where we're going in the next generation of innovation and how we're working? I'm finding a lot of very frustrated folks in their even 30s, but 40s, 50s, and 60s and having to perpetually being adjusted to another technology. I did a study back a while ago looking across a major organization at their career beliefs, and I was surprised to find a bunch of folks in their 30s just as frustrated that they somehow expected that they were going to stay cutting edge Mm. because they were cutting edge in their 20s. And trying to stay up on a lot of this stuff is causing a lot of people 
frustration. And a lot of organizations keep changing their tech underbelly and then not getting rid of some of the things people used to have to do. What's fascinating is I'm talking with lots of companies who are having almost the opposite happen. So instead of learning yet another technology that they're bringing artificial intelligence into their organization to simplify Mm -hmm. and in many ways get rid of jobs, that a lot of jobs have been moving, measuring, lots of spreadsheets, lots of tracking, lots of manual data work. And I'm talking to more and more heads of HR who are saying, well, either our own work or there's all these tool sets out there that are marketing to us to come in and do business process analyzing to tell us where our variances all are and how we could simply, this used to be something they would hire a major consulting company to take a look at one process. It might've taken them six weeks. They can now do it in days or hours. And so a lot of the challenge in the HR people I've been talking with in the past few months has been the, we already have people that we now need to retrain or restaff and you know, it's a real challenge right now is that the more we can now see our processes and simplify them with new tools that augment the work, it's replacing folks who had more mundane tech skills. Hmm. So the, the challenge in some ways is that, and I'm actually speaking on this at UCLA next week, that our jobs will be augmented with tools. And so are we training and setting our own students up to know how to embrace new tech systems that will augment their existing work without making them be the data drones under it? If you look at paralegals, that used to be a business where you were doing massive data research. And now most of that's been automated, getting rid of most paralegal jobs. If I'm going to not be able to get that first line of defense job that is really a data drone at a company while I'm learning the company, you know, what is it that I'll actually be doing in my next two, three jobs out of college or in my 40s and 50s? I'm going to be managing who doing what. And it's not just on the business process side, talking to quite a few of the entertainment companies, they're beginning to have machine learning and artificial intelligence tools that are helping with the creative process. They're helping them think about different ways to develop scripts or different ways to do video editing and being able to then look at patterns and behaviors and simplifying processes. Are we really thinking about whether we're 40 or 20? Are we understanding how we want to be augmented in the work environment? And that is even count the physical processes that are going to be more automated, you know, driving trucks on not just the road, that's already actually happening. And I think eight states where you're having automated trucking, but actually on things like piers and harbors, that when you're on closed properties, you're now getting rid of those jobs where there's not people then driving the truck already. What happens? What is my job going to be where I'm using augmented systems? And am I learning enough ideas around technology and processes so that I've got a value-added job in that environment? And that's where I'm spending a lot of my brain effort right now is thinking about what our educational systems are and beyond as lifelong learning. You know, maybe I need to be building a, a graduate school for life, right? That how we think about continuously, not just updating our tech skills, but we're going to be augmented like our phone augments our brain now, hopefully, not (laughs) the other way around, that we're going to be having these various tool sets that are going to be amplifying what we can do. Are we going to be a worker, be in that environment or where's the, where's the opportunities and, and how are we actually retraining people for what's not going to be a necessarily sitting in front of a computer, looking at a bunch of spreadsheets world. And it sounds to me from what you're describing is, you know, really sort of in the whole digital well-being of what I teach around having technology enhance the human experience rather than becoming it, it requires us to really focus on humanity and what is the most human factor that we bring to that experience or to that that action that is required. So that's the piece that can't be automated, but can be augmented with Mm -hmm. the technology. So 
maybe we need to focus more in on human skills and, you know, social skills and understanding and interpreting the human experience so that that part doesn't get lost. And to me, that's the being intentional and about all of this stuff now is incredibly important. And I'm appreciating Tristan Harris and the time well spent stuff that's been coming out and talking about in terms of the tool sets coming to the individual and the interaction with the, the smartphone. But I'm not seeing that necessarily on, and maybe it is happening and I'm not finding it yet. So listeners, please let me know. On the organization side, are we really thinking about for our own workers and communities, how we want to be augmented and how that actually takes the mundane and repetitive and, you know, whether it's the rethinking of anything from, I'm not necessarily a gigantic fan of Slack replacing email because that's one torture chamber for another, (laughs) but how we really think about, you know, how to augment what we're doing. Yeah, yeah it, it's. I don't see this happening as much on an organizational basis for company side that I really would love to see. Well, and that's really the piece that I focus more in on uh, startups and organizations that have just re, you know, received their first round of funding to get them to think strategically from an early stage about how they're moving in the world, looking at digital well-being and ethics and setting up protocols and making sure that you're complying for future standards on enhancing the human experience rather Mm -hmm. than becoming it. And I think there's a lot of these, not necessarily underground, but not as visual, you don't see as they don't have, they're not as vocal yet. But I definitely see a peer group arising that are very passionate about this and really trying to make the effort there. And you even see within organizations, Salesforce now has a digital ethics officer, and, you know, Google has them as well. But how much influence do they have? That's the part that we may see the shift is that before it may be just sort of a nod to the fact that we need to be thinking about it. But with pressure from groups like the uh, Center for Humane Technology, which spun out of the time well spent movement, I think we are seeing more of a pressure to to basically make sure people comply, make sure organizations comply and creating protocols so that it's easier to comply. And a lot of it also is to rethink what's been created as an addictive system into one that is time thoughtful. Sort of sidebar story on this. Back in February, I had not quite emergency surgery, but close to that and was under for about three hours. And I'm in my mid 50s and I've had surgery before and I've been uh, under anesthesia before. But for some reason coming out of this, my short-term memory kind of went on vacation for a few months. And I've been told that's not abnormal from the situation. But most of my work is brain work. Mm. And most of what I do is organizing things. So I turned to my family and I turned to my coworkers at the university and said, hey, you know what? My ability to remember 20 things at once is pretty much gone. They then said, hey, you're just like the rest of us now. (laughs) But what I did was I went and reset up my digital systems to be a reminder function. And I also began to think, what will my life be like as I get older in a digital world? How much can I set up my systems to be really augmenting me and not being a perpetual mind drain? So to Mm -hmm. me, I look at a lot of this as we look at older adults in the system, that being able to have 20 things being nagged at you and things binging and going off, et cetera, a lot of people actually would have no idea how to set up a simplifying system around their lives. So, you know, I set up Trello with a single button on my phone. So when anything came up in the day, my family makes fun of me. I hit the button and I leave a note and I save it. And at the end of the day, I go, what was I thinking about? All Now I'm better now, but I have these systems that I set up connecting up and Trello actually sits at the core of it because it's very visual and I think visually. And so it, creates all these little cards for me of everything that I was doing during the day. And at the end of the day, I put deadlines on them and responses on them. But I've taken all of that current mind thought yammering digital stuff off the deck. And it's been amazing how making simplifying digital decisions that actually amplify my work has been of benefit. So one of my thoughts 
And one of my areas of interest is how to help people with just simplifying tools instead of letting, whether it's Facebook or email or whatever little notification comes up, be the driving force that to distract them for a really great digital life. So I think that one of the areas we talked about personal, we talked about work and school, but I do think that helping older adults, not by having to learn yet another system, but thinking about how to create adaptive systems to help them with a complex life. And and are you running into people who are working on that issue? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of really great technologies that are coming out that are focused towards memory issues and working with people who have dementia and various other memory related conditions. I think there's, there's a lot of things happening in that space. And there's a lot of people working particularly with, with positive aging around that. I don't know any of the names of the things offhand, but uh, I think if you follow what's going on with, um, uh, what's the, with AARP, they have actually a very dynamic, uh, digital health sort of team that's working on and collaborating with innovation groups to define new technologies that will support the aging process in a positive way. And memory is clearly a big one there. So I think there's really some great things coming up. But you know, even the tool that you were talking about, sounds like, you know, most of us could use that when we're just we have a busy brain, and need to sort of clear out some of the noise. So whether it's for people that are aging and have dementia or whether it's just a busy brain that needs to remove some of the extra noise, I think we all could benefit from it. I'm a gigantic fan of both focus and silence and possibly don't have enough of both in my life. And I do find that my my re-engineered personal processes have been working towards focus in a very non-focused world, which actually sometimes really ticks off people working with me that I'm now working extensively on focus. And there is now social expectations, just like digital expectations, that you're pulled in 25 directions at once and answering every text message when it comes in and emails, etc. So it's a social norms too that come from all this stuff. Even the providers of the technology are starting to build in systems to give you the ability to shut things off and to minimize the noise and help us get a better understanding of our own tech use. So I think it's it's going in the right direction. There's still a long way to go, but I do feel very optimistic that um, – it's going to get better rather than worse. It's still, I, I feel like we're, we've gone through this sort of infancy. We're sort of in the teenage space of like, there's all these great technologies out there and we want to try them all. And we're confident that this is the be all end all tool, but we're still just playing around with these things. But even, you know, our smartphones, I think within 10, 20 years, they'll, we won't have this thing that we have to crane our neck down to to look at, but we'll still have the access to the information and the technology inside it. But um, anyway, I would love to talk with you for hours and hours, and we might just have to have you back, but we've run out of time. Do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to share with the audience? I guess to watch your own data and to be a, be protective of yourself. I've had my Instagram hacked or attempted to be hacked four times in the past eight weeks. And there is a whole side of this in being so open and data filled that make sure you actually are being personally thoughtful on basic stuff, not just my privacy, but you know, my location is being tracked and sold into my emotional state is being tracked and sold into do be open and thinking about what you see And that what you are provided is not all your options. So we are so marketed to so heavily. And there's so many things that are out there that could help you in career, life, decisions that are not trying to get to you. So learning to listen and explore digitally, which could be a whole other hour-long, (laughs) half-hour-long conversation, that most of the system is trying to feed you. And so I'm a gigantic fan of learning to feed yourself and not being on every single digital platform, but to take a look very clearly about how your views of life in the future are being crafted right now. And that's some of the work I'm working on right now is that we are being heavily sold stories about our lives and what's possible. And most people are sitting and letting that stuff be fed to them. 
be really looking at what's possible out there and not just what the easiest button, the easy button is that's being pushed at you. Cool. And so where can people find you if they want to work with you or learn more about the programs that you're offering? I know you, you gave us the, you're at the UCLA Center for Music Innovation, which for those of you listening, it's uh, the website is innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Well, let me stop you right there. We have a new website coming out oh, shortly. Okay. And, you, and the URL will sadly not be that easy. So probably the best bet is to come in via schoolofmusic.ucla.edu and then um, find us through the breadcrumbs there. And uh, you can also sign up there for our newsletter. We have a newsletter that comes out on average every other week with anything from events on music and technology to our own podcast, which is Innovating Music on all the different podcast services, talking with people. You can also find me via Marimel.com, M-A-R-E-M-E-L, which is the research institute I've been running for, gosh, almost 20 years now, looking at social impacts of technology change with major organizations, lots of interesting small projects there. And then nextcareers.org is the entity where we are doing all sorts of interesting things. At, at nextcareer.me, we have some free classes, at least right now in late 2018, that you can take to take a look at ways you can use tools to expand your career options. And that's, that's most of what I've got going on right now, though that always changes. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on, maybe on Instagram. It may not be me. <laughs> um, as well as there's, uh, Marimel is on Twitter and you can find it M-A-R-E-M-E-L on Twitter. Great. So thank you for joining us today. That's Gigi Johnson, who's joined us, the Executive Director of UCLA Center of, for Music Innovation. Gigi, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you today, and I look forward to reconnecting with you wherever we cross paths next. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your inspiration today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We look forward to catching you again with our next episode. If you enjoyed today's show and you've not already subscribed, please make sure you do so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. They drop every Tuesday morning. Until then, bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.